Girls Who Product tells the stories of amazing women to inspire others to follow their path in the product area. This project is supported by Zalando. Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of season three of Girls Who Product podcast. My name is Andre Marquez and I'll be your host today. I'm the co-founder of Productized and and we'll be joined by uh, Inval Ariely. She's the co-founder and co-CEO of Synthesis, a leadership assessment and development company, and author of Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Girls Who Product is a series of interviews with women that have been able to beat the ceiling and become successful makers, entrepreneurs, agents of change. Our mission is to inspire, connect, and empower more people to get into product roles and help them consider products or tech entrepreneurship as a venue for personal growth and professional growth as well. So let me just introduce our guest today, uh, Inbal Ariely. She um, fostered her entrepreneur, entrepreneurial skills during her mandatory military service, serving as a lieutenant at uh, Unit 8200, the Israel Defense Forces Elite Intelligence Corps. This elite technology unit uh, alumni who enter, uh, entered the civilian market and have earned a reputation for their unique entrepreneurial skills and for creating outstanding, successful, and innovative startups uh, like Checkpoint and many others that you might have heard. After completing her military duties and for the past 20 years, Inval embraced leading executive roles in the flourishing Israeli tech sector and has founded a series of programs for innovators where she currently holds board seats. So let me just tell you that Inbal's most recent book is already on sale and has mentioned, it's called Hutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Uh, you might have heard about it, but despite its small size, Israel has the highest concentration of startups per capita worldwide and attracts more venture capital per capita than any other country on the planet. What factors have led to these remarkable achievements and what secrets do Israeli tech entrepreneurs know that others can learn from? By the way, if you're wondering what chutzpah means, uh, it's a noun and it's pronounced chutzpah. And according to Windball's own dictionary, uh, which you can go to at chutzpahdictionary.com, is being brutal honest, um, usually at the price of sounding uh, presumptuous, arrogant, or rude. Example, it takes chutzpah to tell your boss he's wrong. Yes, it does. So um, let's get started with this conversation, shall we? Uh, Inbal, thank you so much for being part of this show. We actually met each other in Tel Aviv in 2016. That was almost uh, four years ago at the DLD Innovation Week. Um, it, it's great to have you, and, and especially at the last, um, at the first episode of, of season three, we're going to close. Um, we're going to open, open a new chapter, that's for sure, um, with the golden key. And, and first of all, uh, well, congratulations on the new book. My, my first question is actually, why did you decide to write your book in English and publish it in the U.S. market first? I, I guess that's a very Israeli thing to do as well. So um, thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm very happy to be um, on the podcast. And and. Well, you might think it's an Israeli thing to do. Um, I'll say that for any entrepreneur starting a business in any industry, um, my suggestion is always to look for, you know, the, the largest addressable relevant market. Um, so when writing the book, I was thinking, okay, who is actually my target audience? Definitely, you know, Israelis would be interested, 
but Israel is a small market, um, Hebrew speaking. Yeah, there's, there's actually, an Hebrew yeah. version as well, right? Well, there is a Hebrew version, but I wrote the book in English, sold it um, to Harper Collins, very large US-based uh, publisher, one of the top in the world. And they're now, you know, uh, managing the international rights, including to Israel. Um, so the, the answer to your question is just like, you know, we're, we're talking about products here and, and entrepreneurship, just in like any other startup, um, think big and try to find your largest addressable market, largest relevant market. And for me, that is the US. Um, and here's your answer. So I was thinking, what would be the most large relevant audience for my book? And that's English speaking people. And how, how is it going, by the way? So it's going really well. It's new for me. It's the first book I ever wrote. Um, um, and thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it's 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 quite an adventure. It's it's fun. It's fun to get you know um, feedback from people all over the world. Um, seeing the book in Malaysia, in Rwanda, in France, in Japan, in the U.S. of course, in Israel, in Portugal, uh, hopefully more and more. Yes, exactly. In Portugal, hopefully soon. Um, it's 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 really a, a very moving and exciting journey. So of course, one of, one of the big topics of the, of the book, and we're going to talk, talk about it uh, during this in, uh, interview, um, is your experience has um, an idea of, um, uh, you know, um, at the Israeli Defense Forces. And one of the question, questions that I always had um, in my mind when, when you hear about the fact that, you know, men and women have to do three years of, of service before going to the university or to the job market um, is that you actually did your bachelor's after three years at IDF. So what was what it like to go to the university when you're already 21, 22 years old with so much experience? Uh, because that's a very different experience from the experience I had. I was a bachelor at 17 um, and that, I guess, it's you know the, the the experience most Western countries have. So, how is how is that experience for you? And I guess most of your colleagues. Right. So, actually, when you think of it, most of my colleagues here in the Israeli tech ecosystem, we even do that later than twenty one, twenty two, because most of us spend more than three years in the military. So, on average, at least four or five years. Um, but that's just normal here. So. For us, this is the normal thing to do. Now, I completely agree with you. It's very different from your experience, and it's different from the experience of most young people in the world. I think that it actually means that when we're stepping into that stage in life of university, of choosing a profession or a direction, in a sense, we're more mature, just by age definition. Okay, We have another four or five years of life experience, which is substantial in that period of time. And so I think the decisions that we're making about our own path, our own tracks, are either more informed or more connected to really what we want to do in life or who we really are as individuals. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is that, in a sense, again, generally speaking, we're approaching the whole experience in a more practical way. So um, at the age of 23, you're a student, you're a bachelor student at university, 
but you also need to earn your living somehow because you, you can, I mean, you're not supported by your parents most typically at the age of 23, right? And you want to be independent. And so the role that university takes in your life is just one part. It's not that, just that. You're not only a student, you're typically a student plus other things. And that puts things in proportion. Um, so I think that's the second difference. Um, maturity, practicality around what it means to go to university. And you did a Bachelor of Law School at Tel Aviv University. So that means that you actually work as an attorney for the first years of your uh, working life, right? Yeah, so I did, uh, I did two bachelors. I did one in law and one in economics, two different ones. Uh, but yes, with the goal of practicing law. And for the first decade of my career in the Israeli high tech, I served as first as a, an attorney and then a, a general counsel to high tech companies. So I was the legal counsel um, of those companies in Israel, yes. Why law? I mean, uh, you had, I guess, a, a very much of a technical dive during those three years, and then you decided to go to something which is not engineering, it's not, you know, very scientific in a certain way. Why did you get out of that um, engineering mindset to, cert to certain, um, I mean, to, to, to law school? So I actually personally um, never coded myself. I was in a very technological advanced environment using technology, designing or defining um, um, systems and, and, and technological solutions, but I never programmed myself um, in the military. Uh, the one thing that mostly interested me in, in my military experience in Intel, in law, um, and then later on in, in business, um, we're actually human beings. Um, and when you think of it, um, even as a lawyer, okay, you can practice law by focusing on the words, right? On legalities, on formalities, on wording, right? And you can practice law from a completely different perspective, which is the human perspective. So the words become only a mean. They become only, you know, the, 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 the way you actually practice law, but what you actually do is you focus on motivation and drivers and what blocks people. Um, and that's how I practice law. So in negotiation, for example, in commercial negotiation, as a lawyer, instead of focusing on the words, I first focused on the intent and the goals and the motivation of the counter side. Okay. And only after understanding really what, drives them, only then translating that into the legal formality of a contract. Um, and I think that's what made me a, a good lawyer, actually. Um, it was not a focusing on, you know, the, the words, by the, but for the essence of focusing on the words. And a little bit like in technology and, and, and product and design, where the, the essence is not the design itself, it how it actually interacts, what it brings to the user and how eventually the user uses it. Yeah, like any good product, I guess. Um, but, but, uh, but you've been in, in the tech um, ecosystem in Israel for the last 20 years, and it, even for Israel. I mean, there's, there, there was a before and, and after. Um, so 20 years spans since, I guess, since the last dot-com crash towards 
today. What do you think are, are the biggest um, differences from what you've seen in the late 90s uh, to the, the late 2010s? That's 2020, right? So um, what do you, uh, ha have you seen any substantial changes? So um, there have been some evolvements, okay? One, for example, is um, the industries, the verticals of focus. One of the things that the Israeli ecosystem is good at is the fact that it is not focused on one specific industry. Okay? So for example, uh, some countries, um, London, in retail tech and financial technologies, for example, okay, or Switzerland in pharmaceuticals, some countries are more focused on a specific industry and innovate there. In Israel, what's interesting to see is that innovation is across the board. And what you actually see along the years is evolvement and change in the industries of focus. Um, so if 20 years ago it was mostly IT, Okay, um, and telecommunication. Uh, fast forward 20 years later, today um, you'll see innovation in um, automotive and computer vision, um, cybersecurity, of course, uh, financial technologies. I mean, a long list, but these have changed a little bit. So that's one change, okay? Um, the industries of innovation. A second change is the fact that if 20 years ago, most of the funding to Israel was from, was actually almost only from the US. So US investors either directly through their funds or as it, through LPs um, in, in the, the first 10 VCs in Israel were um, kickoffed about 20, 20 something years ago, okay? Um, fast forward today, we have over 170 VCs operating here in Israel, and still most of the money comes from abroad, okay? but not just the US. And that's a second difference already. So we see that the, um, the source of funding cha has changed. And not only the source geographically has changed, but maybe more importantly, the source in terms of the identity of the fund, funders have changed. And we see much more strategic funders. So big multinationals, big companies from outside, from outside of Israel who are market, market leaders in their space. And they are actually doing in direct investment in Israeli companies. And that's a second change, which has a lot of implications on the solutions actually, on the innovation that comes from the country. Mm -hmm. what, what kind of implications do you see? So the, the one thing that we don't have in Israel um, as a market, well, as an ecosystem is the market actually, right? I mentioned before, it's a tiny country of 9 million people, Hebrew speaking. Um, it's isolated geographically. The, our our neighbor, neighbor countries are not relevant market to us. And so the one thing that Israeli innovation, Israeli founders have always been struggling with is addressing these global markets overseas. Those strategic partners that we talk about, those multinationals, those big market leaders, they represent the markets. So if we'll take um, um, Intel 
or um, Apple or I don't know, Facebook or Google or, or Coca-Cola or I mean, just any big multinational you can, Nestle, any big multinational you can think of, when they are actually directly involved with the innovation that comes out of Israel, they represent the markets, they represent the needs, they represent the gaps that exist. And that for Israeli startups, for Israeli innovators is, is priceless. Uh, some people say that although Israel has no lack of unicorns, it still lacks the capability to, you know, control bigger companies or, or keep in-house bigger companies and they, they end up being sold to big um, multinationals uh, either in the US or, or even China, Chinese uh, multinationals nowadays. Or, uh, you, of course, you had the, the case of Waze being sold to Google, you had a case of Mobileye being, being sold to Intel. Um, do you agree with this, with this uh, vision that uh, as it scales and become a unicorn, they, they end up being sold out to uh, bigger players? Or do you think this is almost in, inevitable and that's the, the way of the model works and you should accept it as it is? So I think, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle. But let me, let me suggest another... Um, explanation for that. And that actually connects to the book. Um, the way I think of it is, is like muscles. Okay. Um, and in a sense, I think both Israeli entrepreneurs, uh, founders, executives, as entrepreneurs and executives in the US or in France or in Portugal or in London or in China or anywhere in the world, generally speaking, they possess, they have the same muscles, they have the same body anatomy. Okay. Now the question let's, let's is. Let's just assume that, right? <laughs> let's assume that for a second. Yeah, <laughs> for a second. Because I mean, yeah, I, I actually believe that. What's different is actually what muscles they they put in force, in action, what muscles they train. So you could say that Israelis are practicing much more their creative thinking, their entrepreneurial skills, their their um, questioning and disruptive muscles. Okay, which all lead to um, instant, innovative solutions that can grow to a certain scale. And they're somehow neglecting or not using enough other muscles in their bodies and other skills, okay, such as management at big scale. Because there are examples, successful examples, of big scale companies that are managed from Israel. It's possible. It is possible. The same similar mindset I apply to entrepreneurs, founders, executives in other places in the world, okay, where large scale operations, system, systemized operations are the skills more in practice. So let, let me see if I understand what you're saying. What, and I think I, I kind of remember um, from the book something like Israelis, they... They like too much the, the creative process and the creative destruction that comes in the beginning of the entrepreneurial journey. And, and for some reason, that's, you know, that, that prevents um, and, and that becomes, because, you know, big companies, they tend to, to become pretty uh, boring, I, I would say, uh, unless you have Tesla or something like that, which I, or SpaceX, which is, which is not that boring, but um, but but still, I mean, if you if you have a very big company and you're doing 
the, the same business model as usual, uh, that's not the most exciting part of, of any company. And I think that we can, we can agree to that. So is it something in the nature and the culture that makes this entrepreneur feel like, okay, success, done, exit, let me move on to the next company. Let me move on to the next adventure. Let me test something that no one has tested before. So it's definitely in the culture, but what I'm saying is that on, on the two sides, Israeli executives and entrepreneurs have realized that they also need to know how to manage big systems because they grow rapidly and they want to keep managing their companies. And on the other side, take all the big, most of the large companies in the world, they also understand that they need to keep renewing and reinvent themselves. And I mean, if, if in the past they could rely for 50 years on the same business model, the, the cycles are very shorter now. So they, on their side, have realized that they need to hone also other skills that they have not been familiar with. And that's why I think of it like muscles in our bodies. That it's just a question of awareness and practice. And for the, those big multinationals, they need to practice their innovative muscle. Okay. And for uh, and regardless of the stage of life, because even if you're Facebook, at a certain point you re, you 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 innovate and you acquire um, Instagram, or if you're Microsoft, you acquire LinkedIn, and you're right you're you're stepping into that completely new i mean microsoft is a great example of renewal of a company right and what has happened there in the past few years given the 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 the, the vision of the management um i mean people would have never believed that microsoft would come up for a comeback story yeah yeah exactly exactly so it's not necessarily a question of stage it's more a question of awareness and and practice and skills so uh, speaking about practicing skills and, and going maybe for a more personal side, what, what kind of processes uh, do you have in your daily life um, to keep your muscles, uh, you know, brain muscles, uh, muscles, muscles? Are you into meditation? Are you into kind of sports? Do you, do you have any kind of practice that you want to share with us? So, um, I know, I know you have three kids. I have three exactly. kids myself and I know a normal day can, can look like uh, crazy sometimes. So maybe we can start, start from there if you want. I'll quote, I'll start by quoting, um, our former, um, uh, beloved, uh, president Perez, who said he was once asked, um, what type of sports does he practice? So he said, uh, he said, because he was in good fit and, you know, and he said, did you ever see a bird practicing sports? So the, the reporter said, no. He said, of course not, because she keeps flying and that's how she, she's active. So um, I really uh, like that. And it resonated with me uh, because um, I'm a very active person on one hand, like from the moment I wake up in the morning till the moment I go to sleep, I, I do a lot. Um, and I'm in action, I'm in movement, but I also know how to really focus. And I think, so one process that I, foc that I, I um, adapt is, is focus. So when I'm doing something, I try to be as much focused on po as possible on that specific thing I'm doing, um, which helps me kind of, you know, optimizing. What, what kind of techniques 
what kind of techniques do you use? I, I guess, I, you know, I close my phone. So now that we're speaking, my phone is on, um, sleep mode. Okay. So I don't even get like the, you know, the notifications or even the, the, the buzz from the phone, nothing it's closed. I'm not looking at it. Okay. When I work on paper or you know, a, a budget or something that requires more attention, I close my emails for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, nothing will, you know, nothing urgent will happen so that you, you're not even tempted to look at that. I don't have social media open on my desktop on a regular basis. I, I open it only proactively. Um, I'd say two, three, four, five times a day on my desktop. So it doesn't bother me there because otherwise you keep just going back and forth and back and forth. And these transitions are a waste of energy. So focusing is one thing. You could call it mindfulness. Don't need to call it this way. It's just focus uh, with intent. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing that for me is really important um, is sleeping. Um, and uh, I'll quote something else that someone once, uh, another person I admire once told me is that if you don't sleep, you don't dream. Right, because dreaming happens when you sleep. So yeah, if you, you can so have I mean, crazy dreams as well. <laughs> Some crazy, crazy dreams. yeah, all sorts of <laughs> dreams. All sorts yeah. of dreams. But but for me, sleeping has always been like uh, really a very basic need. So I try um, to sleep. Yeah, I try to sleep at least like at least seven hours a night, seven seven and a half. I need. So that, that means that you can you, you put your kids to sleep pretty early or at least you manage well, to do that my kids are, I, I, I don't i don't put my kids to sleep anymore because okay. they're, they're like i have a 17 a 14 and an 11. okay they don't need to be put to sleep anymore need, yeah they don't need that but but it's it's a habit for me um you know obviously when you have you know toddlers at home it's more difficult and please, your please tell me it, it gets better because i have yeah. three kids three for five and Oh. And 11, almost 11 now. It's still 10, yes. but it's almost 11. Does it get better as they get it's old? Easy. Well, it's easier. From the operational standpoint, from the operation, it gets easier. Actually, from the complexity. Yeah, the complexity okay. of the problem scales up, but exactly, exactly, which is which is interesting. So operationally, it definitely gets better. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that you have in your book, of course, is is disconstructing this idea that uh, it's only the military, it's only the, the Jewish culture, it's only um, you know the Israeli culture at large, but it's also a lot to do with building up um, Israelis uh, in Israel, right? I mean, the, the the process, especially starting age ten, when they um, get involved in a number of youth organizations and you talk you know profoundly about this and profusely about this in, in your book uh saying there are uh, hundreds of thousands of israelis involved in the israeli red cross and in, in a number of other organizations so a lot of the questions of course that you might have have uh, had um, ha have to do with okay i don't live in israel so what can i do here um and and I, i'm not saying that you know here in portugal or anywhere else we don't have uh, similar uh, things but that the level of involvement that most most kids this age they have with these organizations is i would say much less 
uh, scouts are more or less popular. Uh, but apart from that, I, I think it's it's basically um, just uh, football and little else, right? Um, so what kind of experience or what kind of advice can you give us in, in raising up um, kids and, and help them make more accountable and so on and so forth? So, so with your permission, let, let me in kind of increase the conversation from raising kids to, to a more you know, uh, broad conversation. Because as you've mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Chutzpah, the book, was published in the US and under a business publishing house, right? So it's not, it's actually, the, the content of the book is about childhood in Israel, but actually the, the, the book is intended for a completely different audience. How, how come? Because the examples that you've just described that are given in the book are just examples to show that by creating the right frameworks and applying the right principles and mindsets, you can actually train those skills that we talked about. And in Israel, it happens at an early age because of different you know, structures that exist. But that's definitely not a must have. And actually my point is that these frameworks, and I'll give you a few examples in a second, they can be applied at a team meeting, at home, um, at a board of directors, um, at university, um, they can be applied to everything. It's it's a matter of mindset. Mm-hmm. I'm really I'm really curious. I, I must say because when I when I was you know uh, listening to the book, one of the kept crossing my mind was um, you know I wish I was 20 years or 30 years younger so I could actually apply this. Of course, I, I looked at uh, in, into the future towards my my kids, but uh, I guess. Lots of people want to take stock from the book and say, okay, this is great, but how can I apply this to my board of directors, right? How can I apply this to my company, to my startup? Great. So let's take, I mean, let's, let's start with one simple example, okay? One of the things the book talks about is chaos and chaos. the importance yeah. of chaos, right? Yeah. The benefits of chaos. You have a Hebrew word for that. Right? Balagan. Balagan. Okay. Perfect. Yes. Exactly. And so chaos or balagan is something that people all over the world, by the way, they feel less comfortable with because it's less structured and it's less predicted and it's less controlled. And as human beings, we prefer to be, you know, in a controlled, organized, predictable environment. Now in Israel, because of many reasons, which are not relevant now, there is a lot of more chaos in our lives. What I'm trying to show through the book is the importance of actually chaos and the benefits that can arise from chaos and translating that into a very practical, very practical concept. Um, Most people, when they come to work or when they go into a, a, a meeting, okay, you'll see that they tend to stick, even the location at the meeting after a while would be the same. The physical location share, share wise. Physical location of where they sit. I mean, not even your desk, even at a board meeting, 
they're kind of our seats because people, you know, I, I know that I'm comfortable next to that person and I know the dynamics with the other person. And after a while, a group creates their sitting arrangements, okay? Now, maybe if you'll ask them, they won't think of it this way, but, but naturally this is what happens. One of the things that I do when, when visiting companies and when advising and consulting to companies is shake that. And not just shake it once, but actually shake it on a regular basis. Now, keep changing locations, as silly as it sounds, as, as small of a you know, tool that it sounds, what happens is that first, by just sitting in a different location, you see the entire conversation differently. You even see the room in a different way. You see the dynamics from a different perspective. Nonetheless, by sitting to other people, something different starts to happen. So this is a very tiny practical example on how to create a more chaotic environment in a very easy way, non-threatening at all, but that, that has outcomes and results that you can immediately see. Okay, um, another idea. Um, when you have brainstorming sessions or just, you know, strategy sessions or just conversations, um, if the, the leading person in the room, typically that would be the boss, right? The manager. If they will start by telling their opinion, conversation done, right? End of conversation. There won't really be a discussion. If you want to create a genuine, authentic dynamics for a real conversation, then the leader in the room should still, should stay quiet, at least until the very end of the conversation, so that people in the room can feel comfortable saying their opinion regardless of his or her opinion. They don't have to follow them. That's another practical example. I mean, and there are a lot of examples like that that I can come up with that are actually taking from the concepts that exist in the book, the principles, okay, the mindset, and not the actual, uh, um, you know, landscape. The landscape is just a setting. Yeah, um, totally get what, what you're saying. Um, of, of course, I think that applies more and more to cultures like, um, like ours, uh, Southern European culture, where Southern Western European culture, I'm not, I mean, I think that uh, in our culture, um, people tend to not voice their opinions so much, especially in, in when it, whenever there is a hierarchy. Okay, so that's kind of changing for newer generations, I would say, but still, it's pretty much like that. Um, so what you're saying is that outstanding, innovative companies, they should try to incorporate some of these chutzpah principles inside their core or DNA by doing small arrangements uh, and small changes like, like you're proposing. Uh, exactly. Right? Because I'm not, I'm not telling anyone, by the way, and I really don't believe that you know, their culture is not good or that my culture is better. Not at all. And I don't want to change their values and cultures, okay? I have a lot of respect for different cultures. But I do think that thinking about the future and the jobs for the future and the skills of the future and economies in the future and innovation, which is 
everywhere around us, okay? Everywhere, in everything we do, micro-entrepreneurship, the gigs economy. I mean, you, you, can, you can address it from so many directions. You need to practice these skills for your own benefit and, and definitely for the benefits of your, your young kids. They will, in their world, you don't even know as a parent what, what, how their world will look like, what kind of jobs they will have, in what industries, what, what professions will really exist. So with that understanding that uncertainty and ambiguity is becoming more and more present in our lives everywhere, in everything we do, we definitely need to feel more comfortable in these situations. And yes, these small changes, they're like spices, okay? They spice up the, the dish. Don't change well, the dish. Spices make the difference. Yeah, perfect, good. Yeah, you know, it's all about, you know, 500 years ago, Vasco da Gama went to India just for spices, right? So <laughs> perfect, I like so that. So that's, uh, that's a big thing <laughs> for us as well. So um, Inbal, do, do you have um, any other, um, maybe just, just to wrap it up, because we're almost with a one hour conversation and it has been an amazing, because I, I just look at my watch and was like, wow, one hour has been very fast. Um, what, what, what's next uh, for you? Are you still involved with the, the board of directors at uh, the accelerator of 8 to 100? Uh, are you still active with them? And, and how, how are you active with the startup community in Israel right now? So I'm, uh, I'm still uh, on the board of directors of the 8200 Accelerator and of additional, like, I don't remember by heart now, five or six additional other programs for innovators of different types. I'm um, involved in programs for women here in Israel. Um, I'm involved in programs actually for different um, communities. So women, um, ultra-Orthodox, um, Israeli Arabs, different types of communities here in Israel. Everything in the um, core, I would say, um, space of innovation, not necessarily technological innovation, but innovation in general and entrepreneurship. So that's definitely my uh, pro bono activities. Like you said, uh, I'm the co-CEO, um, the co-founder and co-CEO of, of, of a business, of a company, um, which, which we're, and we work mostly in North America. So all of our clients are in the US and North America and um, have, we have a large team here in Israel and in the US that by itself, uh, of course, is demanding. Um, and I'm, I'm on a journey with, with Chutzpah. Chutzpah is being now translated um, in addition to Hebrew and English already, like I said, to Taiwanese, Vietnamese, Chinese, and South Korean. Okay, um, and it's just the beginning of the journey. I hope to be, you know, present in Europe soon, mm -hmm. um, in Brazil. Oh wow! Yeah, there's there's like an entire world um, waiting for my chutzpah. Absolutely, speaking of opportunities, and hopefully in Portugal has as well uh, very very soon. We'll be working on, on that for sure. Um, so maybe just just a, a final um, question, which we tend to do to our um, guests, which is any recommended must-read books, podcasts, resources. Um, I know, of course, there's um, 
there's there's a resource page of hootspacenter.com where you can order the book and access tons of resources, including media and your own blog and uh, the book's blog. Um, but apart from that, do you have any go-to resources that you want to share with us? So, oh yeah, you know, I have many. And one of the things that I'm enjoying actually now is going back and doing some reading, some more reading myself. Uh, because when you write a book, you, you kind of, in, in that capsule of, in, in, yeah, in your own bubble, although Chutzpah has a very large uh, um, index and bibliography, I did a lot of research. Um, but I did, I did choose for you um, two main resources that I really enjoy. So one um, is a book, and that's actually, it's not a new book, but it's one that I think is, has such a strong message, um, and that's Blink uh, by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, and, and, and I think at the roots of, of how he analyzes how we make decisions, um, it, it's extremely interesting uh, to me. So that's, and I, com I, I completely agree with, with many of the things that he uh, presented in the book. Um, so that's one thing. And, and um, giving credit and more credit, or like we say in Hebrew, Firgun, like complimenting to uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I say, I'll say that his podcast, for those of you who don't know it, um, it's called uh, uh, um, Revisionist History, where he actually looks at events of different types, events and people and stories from the history um, and analyzes them and tries to understand them from a new perspective, a fresh perspective. Um, and I find it beautiful. I think that one of the things we must do more is actually innovate through looking at the existing landscape around us beat people or experiences. It, with products, it's very strong. You don't always have to completely innovate and disrupt everything. Sometimes it's just about offering a fresh perspective, a fresh experience to something that already exists that completely changes it. Changes everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was it. Um, I think there's, there's like a final word. Our audience is, you know, male, female, and I, we have this, this program. Originally, the idea has always been to inspire mostly younger women towards getting to product management. Um, so my final, um, very final question is, what is, uh, do, do you think that the, the fact that apart from the whole cultural um, aspects that we already talked about, the, the fact that you had your uh, experience in the military, um, which is very similar to, to your male counterparts, and in a certain way that's very unique to Israel, and I think there's only a couple of countries in the world that have uh, female and male uh, service like, like Israel, do, do you think that helps push the, the feminist agenda towards the, the, you know, the right direction? Do you think that has any real impact towards that agenda or do you think the, the actual um, impact is, is not as big as it could be in the first place? So unfortunately, it hasn't. Um, despite the fact that Israeli women serve in the military, when you look, for example, at the statistics of uh, female entrepreneurs, founders, female executives, female investors in the tech ecosystem in Israel, it's similar to Silicon Valley, where there's no compulsory military service, right? So something actually happens after the military in Israel that kind of erases, if you want, that effect. And um, 
if, if I had to choose a message to the, all these young women listening here, um, and by the way, young men, not just women, it's just, what worked for me was that I never thought of myself just as a woman. That never identified professionally who I was, okay? Um, I am a woman, obviously, but I'm a long list of many other things as well. Being a woman is just one of them. And, and if you don't put that gender um, identity as your, again, that's my position, as your first and foremost, you know, um, identification of yourself, then the fact that I'm a woman is actually not that relevant to most of the work I do, or, the, or if I were a man. And it kind of frees you from being busy with it. It's my capabilities, it's my accomplishments, it's my, my aspirations, it's my vision, it's my hard work, it's a lot of other things. The fact that I'm a woman, I have short hair, I have brown hair, does that bother someone? I, I don't know, does that make any difference? Not sure. Um, so it's, it's, for me, it's the same thing. And, and I really try to encourage, again, mostly young women to, because to think of themselves in that regard, not put that gender identification as the main thing. Um, they're, they're, they're women and so many other things at the same time. Yeah, lots of colors in your palettes, right? Exactly. We all have so many so many colors in our palettes. So many spices, right? In the food. <laughs> Lots of spices, that's for sure. Okay, I think that's that's a good uh, way to wrap it up. So get connected with Inbal by email at inbal.ariali at gmail.com. I think you, you told us to drop her a message, drop you a message on LinkedIn. Um, and and Hoodspa Center. Yeah, Hoodspa Center, right? Way. Can order the book. I already have someone that I'm going to send a physical copy of my, of, uh, of, of the book. I like the real book, not the audio book to my, uh, to the wife of my, sorry, to the wife of my brother-in-law. I'm still, uh, owning, owning, uh, I mean, she's, she also has two kids and, uh, and, she, and she, she's Jewish. And I think she really, she gave me a book in Christmas and I'm still, you know, uh, have to give her a book back. So anyways, thank you so much for, for your time with us and uh, hopefully see you again um, soon in Portugal. Who knows? Uh, there's lots of speaking opportunities here as well. So let's This one it. is on my list. Definitely. Have a, have a nice day. Thank you very much, Andre.